This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in studio, we have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. And calling in from Toronto, he's an early bird, is our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hi, guys. Uh, Richard, you are a traveling man these days. You are in Toronto right now. The festival, as we record, doesn't kick off until tomorrow. But you went ahead right there because you were coming straight from Telluride. And it didn't really make any sense to stop in New York for one night and just take a horrible cab to and from LaGuardia, I assume. That's exactly right. Yeah, it just it just felt easier this way. Though I do have to admit that when I touched down in Toronto yesterday, I was like, oh, I kind of wish this was New York, even if it was just for a night. You could like almost see New York from the plane window before you descend. Basically, yeah. But no, it's exciting to be here. And I did walk down King Street, you know, where kind of the center of the action is. And there's already all the kind of, you know, signage and all that stuff up. And it's exciting. Well, you uh, have it already have a screening to get to, which is very exciting. So we are going to try to uh, quiz you about Telluride before we get into Toronto. Uh, and obviously, you saw a lot of amazing movies at the Telluride Film Festival. A lot of those reviews are up at VanityFair.com, along with this incredible portrait series that you helped work on. Um, but instead of maybe having you just list off everything that you saw, I kind of want to just start with some maybe some lightning round questions. Uh, and maybe this is an unanswerable one to start with. But if you were to pick a Best Picture winner or like a real front runner out of what you saw there, what would you pick? Well... My heart would say The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's movie that I really loved, despite not being a fan of his in, in, in most for most movies, but uh, this one I really connected with. So it, I would love if that was a front runner. I think it could be in a really kind of odd year, but I think with my head, uh, it's Darkest Hour, uh, Joe Wright's movie about Winston Churchill. Yeah, that kind of leads into what was going to be my next question, which was this Gary Oldman buzz. It's, I mean, I think I made you pick a Best Picture winner and you picked Darkest Hour, but it seems like the buzz around that more is about Gary Oldman. Like, uh, I feel like a couple times we've heard, like, this is his time, but now it really seems to be his time. Yeah, I mean, I think for our purposes, Darkest Hour was definitely the biggest movie that was there um, because of the Gary Oldman thing, which, I mean, I, you know, I, I, get, I think I get one, like, bold prediction a year, and that was, my, you know, I, I think I already wasted it. I, I tweeted, like, <laughs> from Telluride, you know, Gary, Gary Oldman's going to win that Oscar. 
I, I mean, it's the most Oscar-y performance you know I've seen in a while. Um, he's really, and, it, and it's not that it's just it's not cynical. It's a good performance, and the movie is good. And that's another thing about that is that this is not a great performance in a kind of minor movie that's not very artful. We've seen that happen before. Um, your crazy hearts, or or whatever, your your Iron um, Lady, yeah, still Alice. This is a really well constructed movie um, for the most part. So I think that 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 boosts Oldman's chances even more. So you don't think we're a little worn out on Churchill? I mean, John Lithgow is probably going to win an Emmy for playing him on The Crown, and there was the end of Dunkirk that was quoting Churchill. Like, why? How's he going to get away with yet another Churchill? Because he's fighting fascism, and you know <laughs> these are these are largely liberal people voting at a time when you know a certain kind of fascism or authoritarianism is is uh, is creeping its way back into American uh, political discourse. So, uh, you know, judging from the reception at Telluride, and I should you know clarify that the Telluride audience is a very particular kind of audience it's largely older it's largely i mean almost 99% white it seems sometimes uh, in these lines for movies it's wealthy um you know so it, it's not necessarily all coastal there i talked to plenty of people from the midwest and the south who, uh, who come every year but but you know this audience um was really receptive to it and i do think that they in some ways reflect um the academy demographically maybe not the new academy but it does feel like the way they go tends to be the way the, the Academy goes. So I'm, I'm going to trust their effusive response to, to uh, Darkest Hour. Richard, last week I heard before, um, I, I heard Gary Oldman was going to win Best Picture, I mean Best Actor last week from a very opinionated Oscar person who had seen it. The other person, this uh, the other thing this person said was, and it's going to, and the Dark Hour is going to make people forget Dunkirk. Is that, how do you think the Dark Hour Dunkirk relationship is going to play because it sounds like more critics have said actually dunkirk might edge out uh darkest hour in the long run i think that's a really interesting question and um i wrote a kind of wrap-up of telluride like um what it told us about the oscars that people can read on vf.com where i said the they feel like nice compliments to each other almost as if they were made you know, with each other in mind, because um, we see what's happening on the beach with the soldiers, and then we see what's happening in the you know in the bunkers in London uh, with the politicians. Um, I think that in an in an ideal world, they would split it. Like Nolan would get a best director nomination, and Darkest Hour would get a best picture nomination, or something like that. But I think that their your 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 source might be onto something there uh, in terms of you know Darkest Hour is coming out later; it'll be fresher in people's minds. And um, Dunkirk was uh, you know could be kind of reduced to in people's memory as a summer action movie. I realize that sparing the feelings of Christopher Nolan is not on the minds of the Academy, as it's obvious by the way they've kind of not really shunned him, but not shown a lot of interest in him in the past. But if if he makes a World War II movie that is a hit and they still ignore him, I'm going to feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I, I, same. I mean, and it's and it's not just because like you know he deserves it or anything. It's because uh, you know because he's he's paid his dues. It's really because Dunkirk is such a technically you know kind of marvelously made movie. Like that deserves recognition. I mean, yes, it's a studio movie, and we sort of have trained ourselves to be more like you know supportive of the indie things, which I think is in general a good rule. But Dunkirk is you know is deserving of that kind of um, praise. And if you know we're invested in the survival of the movie industry, at the end of this really god awful box office summer, Dunkirk is one of like two things that actually works. So really, they should be uh, like blessing Christopher Nolan with everything they have. 
But I do want to say before we move on from Darkest Hour that I have been rooting so hard for Joe Wright uh, as I've been, been a big fan of his work and I didn't hate Pan, unlike a lot of people. Uh, and I'm just so relieved to hear that Darkest Hour is really good since the trailer made me just worried it was going to be this really stuffy period piece and kind of him trying to like veer back to respectability. And it sounds like it's a Joe Wright movie that is really great. It's it's really exciting to hear. Yeah, I saw the, the uh, Darkest Hour at its, I think, second big screening. So I wasn't at the first one. But, you know, he still came out and introduced the film. Uh, and he said he was getting very emotional that weekend. He said, And he said that the movie, because it's about, you know, Churchill, you know, sort of pushing towards war and other people, uh, Neville Chamberlain, um, saying, you know, that they, they should try to broker peace with Germany. He said the movie's a lot about doubt. And he mentioned that he had had, he, he, the script came to him at a time in his life when he was experiencing some doubt. And I, of course, in my head, I'm like, oh, that's, that's about Pan. He's talking about Pan. Um, So this, I think, for him to have this really warm reception in um, in Telluride, and he's going to get the same, I think, in Toronto, you know, I think it it must feel really good. It's it's a good bounce back for him. Uh, So you talk about how... uh Darkest Hour being about fighting fascism might uh, give it some some punch in the modern times. And I'm, I'm really curious about this in The Shape of Water, since I read the interview that Rebecca Keegan did with Guillermo del Toro, and he kind of really explicitly was like, this is about being Mexican and about modern times. But he's kind of a rambling guy, and I couldn't totally piece together the metaphor in The Shape of Water from what he said. So how this movie is a monster movie about a woman falling in love with a sea creature, but it's also about Trump? You know, it's funny. I, I I read that same interview, and um, I I I that was not my read of the movie, and and maybe it's because I was coming from a different perspective. I saw it as sort of a queer love story. I mean, not only between this you know this woman and this monster, kind of representing sort of you know f- you know love on the fringes, um, but also Richard Jenkins in this really beautiful, heartbreaking supporting performance uh, plays her next door neighbor, who's this kind of older gay man who it seems never really you know got got the romantic life that he wanted, and it just and it's about this kind of, you know, this uh, stern conservative government official played by Michael Shannon trying to sort of tear Sally Hawkins and her monster asunder. So I read it as as, as that. Um, but, you know, I can see also, you know, and I obviously trust the filmmaker uh, that it's uh, allegorical about other things. It's it's about difference and otherness, but not in a sort of pedantic or, or you know, bonky over the head kind of way. I, I think it, it's it's allegory and fable that really works. Yeah, I think uh, Guillermo del Toro also said in that interview, like, love is love. So I think that um, that kind of supports your reading of it, too. Um, which, I, get, I mean, I guess that's what makes for a great movie sometimes, is that uh, a lot of different people can bring different things to it. But I'm curious about what sold you on this uh, that kind of didn't work for you with other del Toro movies. Well, something I mentioned in my review is that I feel like with other movies of his, he gets so lost in one idea, he kind of falls into it and tear, and takes the movie down with him. You know, he 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 forgets to kind of make a complete film. Um, and I also think that uh, in the past, his emotional intelligence has not always been there. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a beautiful movie, but you know, you think about something like Crimson Peak or um, Pacific Rim, and and it. It's a little bit kind of he's he's a fanboy and but but he's not really sort of mature about how adults interact with each other. But I, in this, and I don't know what changed or maybe this just meant more to him. In this, I I fully got it. I mean, it's a movie that has this kind of childlike whimsy to it, and yet it's full of sex and uh, adult themes. And he just writes people. Um, the writing is is very sharp and very um, credible. You know, they they sound like people, and so that's kind of at the core of the movie. And then everything that surrounds it is this. You know. You know your your familiar Del Toro, you know, flourishes of design and detail and world building. Um, but at the core, again, there's this this crucial humanity to it that just makes sense. And I think that his films, many of them, have lacked that in the past. 
So you talk about how you love this movie and how you would like for it to be the best picture winner, but maybe that's a long shot. But what are kind of what are the hopes for this? It seems like maybe Sally Hawkins is finally going to get her due again. Yeah, Sally Hawkins plays um, a woman who's mute. She's not deaf, but she she doesn't speak for reasons that are sort of vaguely revealed uh, as the movie goes on. But yeah, she's fantastic in it, and it's a performance that you know is technically difficult because she has to express a lot without saying anything out loud, and she pulls it off really well. So I think that that'll that'll kind of differentiate her from the pack. It's looking to be you know something of a stacked year for actresses, not not quite as much as it has been in the years past. But I think that she's definitely that movie's best chance. Unless I don't know, unless this new academy just kind of picks up on its weird sex positive sort of lefty um wavelength maybe 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 they will and then it could do more um certainly in design categories i mean it looks incredible and apparently it only costs like 20 million dollars i mean other filmmakers should be taking notes or calling up del toro and saying how did you do it wow let's talk about that best actress thing you were mentioning because i wanted to find a way to get into battle of the sexes and uh telluride last year was where you uh proudly proclaimed that Emma Stone was going to win Best Actress, and she did. Sounds like she really has pulled off another, maybe not like a guaranteed but, uh, Best Actress win, but a really great performance in Battle of the Sexes. Yeah, she, she's she's really good in it. And the movie, you know, I kind of, I, I, I turned to a, a fellow film critic, uh, David Ehrlich, before the screening started, and I was like, this is going to be bad, right? And and I didn't, not because of the subject matter, just because the, the directors who made Little Miss Sunshine have, have sort of not built on that prom as much since then, and, and um, I don't know, I don't really like sports biopics. And it, it, it really pleasantly surprised me. It's, it's a well-done movie, and I think that a lot of that um, is, is, is owed to Emma Stone's performance. She's just, she's good, she's tough, she's tenacious, but she's really human, um, and she has wonderful chemistry with Andrea Riseborough, who plays a romantic interest. Uh, so yeah, I think that also the movie is uplifting and, 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 and does speak to our times a little bit, you know, a very competent woman threatened by this media hungry clown guy. Obviously that had a much happier ending than, than our real, um, than our current thing did. You know, obviously this is a real story too, but yeah. So I think that that, that kind of political moment combined with just Emma Stone being great puts her in the running. But something I did argue in this Telluride wrap up is that there were people at in, in Colorado saying, oh, it's going to be like The Blind Side, it's going to get a Best Picture nomination. And I could see that, except that, you know, The Blind Side was a huge box office hit, and that's, I think, really what propelled it into the Academy's attention. They were like, all right, we got to, we got to acknowledge this movie. And, but that was about football, and it was sort of conservative, and Tim McGraw was in it, and it was about a white lady solving a black kid's life, you know, so it had this very self-satisfied kind of quality to it, whereas Battle of Sexes is a period piece, it's about gay stuff and feminism, it's about tennis, which is not, you know, as big a sport in America as football is, so I don't know if it has the same box office chances, and I think that could hurt its overall Oscar chances. But on the other hand, uh, isn't isn't the blind side less likely to get Oscar attention because it's conservative and only was able to do that because of box office sort of in an American sniperish way, whereas this one is sort of a more of a what's the tennis uh, term for fastball down the middle to uh, to blue <laughs> line drive uh, a blue coastal mm-hmm. America. I mean, you could argue it that way too. Maybe the blind side is a terrible metaphor for it, but it doesn't seem like. This particular, you know, the Little Miss Sunshine group and Emma Stone and Steve Carell—that's like a pretty Oscar-friendly group of individuals. And tennis is—is is, if anybody plays it, um, rich liberals in California do. 
That's very true, Mike. You're right. And from that perspective, it 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 certainly it looks to have better chances. I mean, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. I, I don't know. I mean, I, definitely the the response was was pretty pretty effusive at Telluride. So, uh, you know, I, just kind of anecdotally in, in line after the screening, hearing people say, "Oh, I love that one. I love that." You know, I didn't really hear a lot of negatives about it. So we'll see. It's it's coming out actually pretty soon. So we'll we'll have some indication of its uh, of its public appeal. You know, in a couple of weeks. Is it seem it seems to me that Emma Stone in this film is kind of playing very low key she's a little she's a little more introverted i'm i'm gauging entirely from a trailer that i watched um and obviously the contrast with steve carell's bobby riggs is is intentional and and large but but is this a more kind of interior performance in some ways than than some of what we've seen from her in the past yeah, I would say so. I think you gauge that well from the trailer. I said to somebody afterward, it's really, fu- it's really nice seeing her play a grown up, and um, yeah. I, you know, she she nominally played an adult in 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 La La Land, but it was she was she was young, she was hungry for, you know, she was just at the start of things. Here, she's playing someone who is at the height of her career, really, um, you know, famous already, established already, and 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 dealing with some. She's married to a guy, but sort of falling for this woman, and you know, she's dealing with some really adult things, and. Emma Stone rises to the occasion and, you know, and, um, and, and yeah, and, and she's a little quieter, a little subtler, but I think that, that, that makes sense given, given the character. Uh, even though I haven't seen Battle of the Sexes yet, I want to give us room to start the uh, Andrea Riseborough Best Supporting Actress campaign that you mentioned in your review. Uh, if we have any power, I feel like we should just go ahead and get on that train right now because I, as you mentioned, like, I, she's been great in a lot of things, but Hollywood never seems to know quite what to do with her. I mean, is this finally the breakout chance for her? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's the first movie or one of the first movies that she's been in that, that has this kind of, yeah, this, the, these sort of qualities that, that could keep it in the sort of Oscar attention. Uh, so, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, she, man, she's so good and, and she has such great chemistry with Emma Stone. And, and you know, she doesn't have that much to do but um, or, or really that much of a person to play, exactly. But, but she's still really great and it's a testament to that she can really breathe a lot of interesting texture in life into a character that's maybe not as filled out as she deserves i uh i totally forgot that she was in um nocturnal animals so she has been in that and birdman so she's had kind of like two oscar adjacent runs that feels like maybe it could benefit her as she uh kind of makes her way to the front here well richard we are losing you in a second but uh any last thoughts from telluride anything else you want to make sure that we're all paying attention to maybe that's going to be at toronto in a couple days or uh is coming later in the fall well, a movie that I missed, but our Rebecca Keegan saw and loved, was this, this Western called Hostels from uh, Scott Cooper, who directed uh, Black Mass, the uh, Whitey Bulger movie. Uh, he did Crazy Heart that Jeff uh, Bridges won an Oscar for. It's this Western that's about racism against American Indians, um, and it's violent and, and dark, I think. But apparently the performances are really good and um, by Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike. So, you know, I've read certain pieces saying, you know, if the movie comes out this year... Christian Bale is definitely in the running. The question is, is if it comes out this year, because it went to Telluride, a really rare film at Telluride that didn't have distribution. It's not a buyer's market at Telluride, so you don't see a lot of movies that are looking to be picked up there. But this one showed up there. Scott Cooper kind of financed it in a really unorthodox way. There's an article about that in Variety. So it's kind of this odd movie. It it shouldn't exist, and yet does. So that's going to be at Toronto. I'm going to see it here, and it will probably get bought, and we'll see if it comes out this year. That would be, it's a short lead time to sort of launch a campaign and find a release date and all that but it's one that we should we should not uh overlook we should keep our eye on it well thank you for uh trekking out to the mountains for us richard and for then uh settling yourself up in toronto i hear you're uh, applying for dual citizenship just in case uh you just want to stick around 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's why I'm, I'm heading down to City Hall right now. That's why I'm. Uh, that's why I have to leave. Not the worst idea. Toronto's going to be like Miami in about five years, anyway. So get in on the ground floor. <laughs> exactly. Um, by the way, before we lose uh, Richard, I should just say Richard and Rebecca did amazing research and and um, and interviews and captions for this gorgeous uh, portfolio of images and portraits from uh, the Telluride that Justin Bishop, my buddy Justin Bishop, uh, photographed, and our amazing photo editor Kiara Marini uh, produced. So please do check that out. It's really, my, I think my favorite shot is Barry Jenkins on the gondola, but there's so many oh, great yeah. things, including Emma Stone posing with Billie Jean King and the founders of Telluride and it's just like it's a real great kind of view of that festival it's the next best thing to being there I guess having never been there yeah they did a, such a great job and I have to admit that when um, Kiara who, who's great and talented I should have doubted her when she when she um presented the idea to me. I was like, oh, I don't know. That's going to be hard. Like, they don't like having photographers there. They don't, you know, it's hard to get around. And I was I was skeptical about it. But they pulled, they did such a great job. And people really should go look. These photos are, are excellent. And they really do capture a sort of spirit um, of what it's like to be there. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's well worth a look. I think uh, my personal favorite is the one of Ben Mendelsohn's a smoking on a dock. Yeah, it seems yeah. like he's always maybe smoking on a dock and yeah. just like happened to find him there in the woods. He um, sailed up from right. uh, Florida from Bloodlines. Oh, and Guillermo, exactly. Guillermo del Toro did a self-portrait on the back of one of these postcards. You'll see. Anyway, go look at it. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Shield being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash little gold men. 
So, Mike, you and I will be joining Richard in Toronto here in the next couple of days, and uh, it's going to be a very busy couple of days, as it always is. Uh, well, first of all, do you want to talk a little bit about what you and I will be doing that uh, people can look out for? Yeah, um, we're going to be uh, hosting Red Carpet Arrivals live streaming video shows on the <laughs> Toronto Twitter feed. Uh, so, um, I, I really don't know exactly what we're in for, but it sounds really cool. All the people from Toronto have been super nice, which is, uh, very normal for Canadians, but, uh, like surprisingly unusual and refreshing for New Yorkers. And, uh, we're going to be doing, what are we doing? Eight or nine of these things? It sounds like. I think nine. Yeah. Nine. So starting, uh, tomorrow night. Uh, we will be interviewing all the cast. We're going to have apparently pride of place on the red carpet. So it'll be basically little gold men live on the Toronto red carpet. With the people who we talk about, they're trapped with us as we talk to them about their Oscar chances. We'll try and let them get into the conversation. It can sometimes be hard to wedge your way into a conversation on this podcast. I know. But I think we'll give them a chance. No, but I think I'm excited. I think it's going to be really cool. There's a lot. We still have a lot of research to do to make sure that we know what we're talking about with all these movies that in in pretty much every case, I imagine, we're not going to have seen. Um, but that's okay. The audience won't have seen them either. So I think that'll kind exactly. of keep us on track and, and prevent us from asking things like, okay, wait a minute. At the beginning of the third act, uh, there's <laughs> this moment. Like that's, those are good conversations for like January and February. Well, I'm hoping also that since we're at the very beginning of this cycle for a lot of people that they're not going to be completely worn out the way, you know, if you're on the red carpet at the Oscars, like if someone asked Taraji P. Henson about NASA one more time, she would have screamed. Right. Uh, so everyone's going to be, everyone will be relatively fresh by the time yes, we get to Yes, we can preview for them the questions that they're going to be insanely uh, bored of within in, in very <laughs> short order. And then hopefully we see them again at the Oscar party and it's like, hey, so we told you you'd be sick of it, yeah. right? And then, they, uh, <laughs> then they shove us away to get to the bar. Exactly. So also in Toronto, we'll have a lot of the stuff that we've had in previous years. Krista Smith will be there kind of interviewing a lot of the people in uh, in her studio. We'll have portraits of all of them. Uh, we'll have Richard on hand writing reviews. What else? I mean, it's going to be a Toronto extravaganza. Yeah, Julie Miller days. will be there uh, doing some writing as well as producing um, Krista's shoots. We're going to have our social director, Jeffrey Towsey, and our executive producer of video, Eric Leffler. This is turning into like a credits reel. But we, we, have, a, <laughs> we have a big crew. And, and so, you know, just check out the, the Vanity Fair Instagram. Check out the Vanity Fair social feeds. We're going to have all kinds of cool stuff. And we're covering this all in a way that we never have before at a density that we've never tried before. So I think it's going to be fun. I love that, that that Telluride portrait series really kicked off the season right, as far as I'm concerned. And I just mm-hmm. want to keep that... And, and and, and all the great, you know, stories that uh, that Richard and Rebecca wrote. I mean, R- Rebecca definitely read her interview with Gary Oldman, her interview with Guillermo del Toro, uh, Richard's great reviews. We also had Guy Lodge in Venice. We've got. Uh, I think we're going to have some photos coming through from Greg Williams in Venice. So anyway, you cannot escape our award season coverage. It's it's yes. it's for real. Uh, so let's talk about the movies that are going to be at Toronto. Uh, Richard wrote a preview for the festival that's going to be up on the site today where he kind of runs through. A, there's a lot of things that uh, we've been talking about from Telluride that are going to be there, like Lady Bird and uh, Suburbicon and Downsizing and things like that. But a couple of really interesting things that are going to be showing up for the first time. There's a Sir Sharonin who's in uh, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, which uh, Richard gave a really nice review out of Telluride, even though we didn't talk about it. Uh, she'll have On Chesil Beach, which is an Ian McEwan adaptation. And you might remember last time she was in an Ian McEwen adaptation, it was Atonement. That worked, uh, worked out. out pretty well. That worked yeah. out very well. 
Well, and as Richard pointed out, kind of, it's a uh, Anchesel Beach is kind of low key in its level of buzz right now. But uh, the last time there was a Saoirse Ronan literary adaptation with low key buzz, it was Brooklyn, which yeah. got this picture nomination. <laughs> uh, so you really can't count her out. So if you're a novelist, um, call Saoirse Ronan's <laughs> agent. That's your move. Yeah, I mean, God, I mean, her face like she can say like whole paragraphs of text in that face. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I think what the one of the ones that I am excited about, I know Richard is too, is Molly's Game, which is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. Uh, and we're familiar with the story because we uh, Vanity Fair ran an excerpt from the uh, the memoir that inspired the whole thing a couple years ago. Yeah, Molly's Game. Yeah, this is about uh, Molly Bloom, who is a, an Olympic skier. Uh, who ran one of these kind of high-profile uh, poker games? I guess out of—I don't know if it was out of her house or whatever. Anyway, she had this. Um, she had this high-profile poker game. Obviously, things in that kind of situation always end up going sideways, and so she wrote a tell-all about it. And now the Aaron Sorkin has put it into into a film. And if I had to guess. I would say there's going to be some fast talking in this. If I if I just had to take a <laughs> flying leap. Well, you know what I'm most intrigued about, and I don't know, I mean, God knows, there's so many lawyers involved in this, but the the book itself, that uh, the excerpt that ran in VF, she kind of refers to all of these uh, movie stars who she's playing the poker, poker game with by first name only, but one of the names is Toby, spelled T-O-B-E-Y, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of very thinly veiled uh, pussy posse kind of stuff in there, and yeah. I'm very curious about how much of that is in the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, you got to kind of nod at it, right? Uh, I, I would think. I mean, that's half the fun of this thing. Knowing knowing Aaron Sorkin, he'll find ways to uh, to lay it in without uh, without getting sued. Yeah, and and I mean, Jessica Chastain wouldn't be my first thought for who would play this kind of. I'm assuming fast talking, you know, poker person. But uh, but it's it's a great choice. I mean, when when is Jessica Chastain not a great choice? So I'm really excited to see what what turns out here. You got Idris Elba, you got Kevin Costner, you know, which is never which is always kind of interesting. Yeah. Michael Sarah perhaps playing himself. If I you know I don't know. He might be the uh, the Toby. He could be Toby. He for. actually yeah. could be Toby. <laughs> yeah, Chris O'Dowd. I feel like we now have a uh, we now have a gallery in the works of who is who in uh, uh, Molly's game. Oh, good. Yeah, let's do that for sure. But yeah, no, I think that this will this will be interesting. And and as we've said before on the show, I think like it kind of came out of nowhere, which does make you think, uh, w- w- which reminds us all of the big short trajectory of yep. kind of like it wasn't on anyone's radar. Then it suddenly burst into the scene. Maybe that means it's really good. And maybe that means it will it will uh, go the distance. Yeah. Uh, speaking of out of nowhere, there was a really late addition to the schedule that I honestly didn't realize until Richard wrote his preview. Um, the Denzel Washington movie, I'm, I'm gonna, it's called Roman J. Israel Esquire, which is a hell of a title. But it's written and directed by uh, Dan Gilroy, who was behind Nightcrawler. And it's a big central Denzel Washington performance. And I kind of saw it on the lineup. It was coming out later this fall, and I figured it was like a... Um, kind of a box office play, but when it got added to the TIFF lineup, that's really intriguing. It feels like now they're really putting a lot of hope, a war to behind it. Yeah. And first of all, let's start with his really cool hairstyle and, uh, and sort of purple suit. <laughs> and and the logline sounds great. Stars is Denzel Washington. First of all, you're already in a good place. Stars is Roman yeah. Israel, a driven, idealistic defense attorney who, through a tumultuous series of events, finds himself in a crisis that leads to extreme action. So... I mean, that's pretty cool as a setup for Denzel, because you always want to see Denzel being a guy who, like, for the first act of the movie is with 
is withstanding the urge to like kill everybody in sight and then eventually <laughs> just does kill everybody in sight. Like, I don't know if that's really what's going to happen here, but that's kind of, you know, on the equalizer theory of Denzel Washington, great movies. Like, uh, I yeah. don't know. That would be my hope of what happens. Well, and the funny thing about Denzel Washington is under no circumstances is he overdue for an Oscar. He has two. He won one this century. Like, he's doing fine. But when Fences really went so far in award season and there was a sense for a long time, I think I'm sure we talked about it on the show that he might overcome Casey Affleck to win Best Actor. And when that didn't happen, I feel like there's now this narrative. It's like, oh, well, we got to give Denzel an Oscar. And that's going to be really powerful. Yeah, he's somehow overdue for his third Oscar. Yeah. Uh, I think that that could really power this movie uh, into the season. Well, I, I mean, he is, he he occupies a Meryl Streep-ish place in uh, the movie business, right? I mean, he's a towering yeah. figure who is who is larger than life in every way. In fact, even more so than Meryl in the sense that Meryl Streep can still sort of affect a certain down-to-earthness and Denzel's like does not bother with that. Denzel is like <laughs> is like literally cruising at 30,000 feet at all times. Um so so that's like, you know, that's cool. He's everyone looks up to him, everybody respects him and and people still go see his movies uh last time we checked, which is a very part makes him part of a very small group of people. Yeah, Fences made almost $60 million in theaters, which is a heck of a lot for an adaptation of a Broadway play that comes out, you know, in the middle of December. And you got Colin Farrell in this movie, which I always find to be a good sign. I always, for the past 15 years, find that to be a good sign. There was a time when that was not a great sign, but now it is a great sign. Well, he'll be around with Killing of the Sacred Deer, which uh, premiered at Cannes, so it's kind of less of a big surprise waiting at Toronto. But that's always a pleasure of the festival for people like you and me who didn't go to Cannes and have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, I'll be seeing uh, that. I'll be seeing Call Me By Your Name, finally. Uh, I don't know. what like In terms of what we're actually going to see when we're not running around on the red carpet, what are you just excited about? I, You know, I'm really interested in uh, in Stronger. Like I, I like a Jake Gyllenhaal uh, performance, and that looks like um, it looks a little bit like first season of Friday Night Lights meets you know whatever is a marathon terrorist movie. But um, <laughs> but I I just think Jake Gyllenhaal has done such incredible performances in the past few years, um, and that thing has a bit of uh, um, Oscar-y Casey Affleck talking in a uh, Boston accent and suffering a lot vibe that I feel like um, it, it could be really interesting. Um, what about you? Uh, well, I wanted to give a shout out to the movie that I keep saying is my top priority, which is I, Tanya, the uh, oh, yeah. Tanya Harding biopic that <laughs> it just, it, it seems like it should be like a Ryan Murphy series or like the idea that like we're having a, like a full on uh, Tanya Harding biopic, but it stars Margot Robbie, who I think is really incredibly talented. She's been, she's made some like weird blockbustery choices, but she broke through big for a reason. And I think it's a really good role for her. And the director Craig Gillespie has had also a really up and down career, but uh, even when he made something like last year's The Finest Hours, which uh, starred Casey Affleck and Ben Foster, and then everyone totally forgot about when they had Oscar movies. Um, I don't know. I just think it's got a ton of potential, and I love the idea of, uh, like, the the, to- the title is like, I, Claudius, but I, Tanya. It just right. feels like it's got a lot. And uh, as Richard pointed out in his preview, he interviewed Allison Janney earlier this year, and she said that in I, Tanya, she gets to do some of the cruelest, darkest comedy I've ever been a part of. So that sounds incredible. Yeah, that sounds, that that's exciting. Yes. I mean, anytime, anytime you're kind of taking an ultra serious but kind of ridiculous view at a world like that i'm i'm, I'm not not ultra i guess it's not ultra ultra serious but it's well, like the title dark sounds comedy. ultra serious but yeah we'll see like that's that's the interesting tone that i'm intrigued to see how it plays out 
And then just one last thing, uh, and one of the films I think we will be on the red carpet for. Uh, so Andy Serkis is making his directorial debut with Breathe, which is a uh, a story about a real life disabled uh, activist for disabled, and it's played by Andrew Garfield. And it kind of has a lot of trappings of like the theory of everything. Like this is a very noble, true story. Uh, but it stars Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy, who I just feel like are so likable. I'd see them do anything. And I've always found Andy Serkis such a really like empathetic and thoughtful actor, and he's yeah. done obviously incredible work for motion capture. And I just I just think he's got a lot of potential as a director for capturing a really human story. So I kind of want to put faith in that to be more than kind of a uh, very noble biopic. Well, and I just really want Claire Foy to be like a huge star and not one of these oh people who's stuck in one um, in one TV role. That's my that is yeah. my ho- wish for her. Well, I mean, I think it's definitely going to be hard to see her and not think of the queen. Yeah. But uh, she, I mean, she's so incredible on the crown that you really assume that she's capable of just about anything. I also got to bring up uh, Chappaquiddick, partly because... Yeah, speaking I, of real-life dramas. <laughs> partly because I went to Chappaquiddick this summer, and a friend of mine... I happened to be with a friend of mine named Jonathan Darman, who is a presidential biographer. And he... I mean, you know, this is when you're like, this is a very privileged situation I'm in. I'm standing here looking at the <laughs> spot of this horrible tragedy. I don't want to make light of it. Uh, but this horrible tragedy, or, or worse, maybe crime... And having it completely described to me in gorgeous, fascinating detail by a presidential historian, Jonathan Darman. And so I am now like totally hooked on this story. I mean, it is it's a crazy, crazy story. I think that people don't really kind of realize like just how crazy it is. And when you're standing there looking at the spot and looking at, frankly, how shallow that water is and how seemingly easy it would have been to to save, you know, Mary Jo Kopechny instead of doing all the other very difficult things that Ted Kennedy did that night. I think that this movie, if they if they do it right, is going to be extremely fascinating. And there's just something about the shape of Jason Clark's head where I'm like, that is really great casting. <laughs> Don't you agree? Well, I mean, he's just got a big oh, Kennedy head. Yeah. Well, and I've been such a fan of Jason Clark for a long time. I think he's just, like, he was really great in Zero Dark Thirty. He had a great role in The Great Gatsby. I've, I'm a big fan of White House Down. And uh, he's also great in Mudbound, uh, also yes, in the worst I hear that. movie this year. Yeah. Yeah, I've been kind of waiting for him to have his like big breakout moment. Like Everest didn't really work out for him, and Terminator Genesis didn't work out for anybody. Um, so I'm really hoping this can be a, a chance for a lot more people to kind of see what I feel like I've been seeing in uh, Jason Clark for a long time. Well, maybe it'll be Jason Clark as Ted Kennedy versus Gary Oldman as um, as <laughs> Churchill. I don't know. You know why not? What the hell? I think we're going to spend a lot of this season talking about how the movies do or do not reflect the Trump era. But I do think the more time we spend talking about uh, Winston Churchill, it is going to feel like a little bit of a dig. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting political season, which I guess we can talk more about once we've seen a bunch of these movies. Sounds good. Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. And please find us on Apple Podcasts where you can rate and review the show and uh, just tell other people to check in. We'll have so much to talk about in the coming weeks, and it's a um, a really great time to join this discussion. Uh, You can find all of us and everything we're doing from the Telluride and Toronto Film Festivals and beyond at VanityFair.com. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And you can find Richard at Rylaws. And Joanna, who will be back joining us again soon, is at Joe Wrote This. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the most darkly optimistic look at our current weather apocalypse goes to Mike Hogan. Toronto's going to be like Miami in about five years anyway, so get in on the ground floor.
I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.